Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. So we're going to do something a little different in today's episode. Shani Reichman, the National Director of Israel Policy Forum's Atid Young Professionals Program, will be interviewing Noah Schusterman, a researcher at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv and the coordinator of their Israel-Palestinian Research Program, on the current state of play in the West Bank, Palestinian politics, and what will happen the day after Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. These are hugely important topics that will only, dare I say, become more relevant in the year ahead. But first, a few thoughts from me. We're still waiting for a new government here in Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu has until next week to finalize his governing coalition, and then likely a week after that to formally swear in this government. So we're likely looking at the last days of 2022 for this new government to get up and running. But that hasn't stopped the incoming government, and it's likely ministers from already making their plans clear. Uh, the best way to make sense of it all, I think, is to look at the coalition agreements and the public comments vis-a-vis distinct Israeli institutions. Uh, so last episode, we dove deep into the plans to, quote-unquote, reform the Israeli judiciary, beginning with the institution of the Supreme Court. Uh, legislation to this effect may already be in the works as soon as next week, even prior to the government formally being sworn in. We've already seen Itabar Ben-Gvir pick a fight with senior Israeli military officers over the rules of engagement and conduct for soldiers in the West Bank. Uh, IDF Chief of Staff Aviv Kohavi, for his part, has already had to issue a letter to all forces reminding them to uphold the correct values of the IDF. Uh, the Israel police, to go even further, uh, said to be controlled by Ben Gvir in his role as National Security Minister, is already in crisis due to the new powers that Ben Gvir will likely be given over their operations. Police Commissioner Kobi Shaptai has, for his part, already issued his own letter to all his forces stating that politics won't be allowed to interfere with the proper work of the police. Betelel Smotrich, soon to be finance minister in this incoming government, will likely also get control of the various military bodies that control civilian life in the West Bank, i.e. the civil administration and the coordinator of government activities in the territories. Uh, Already, anonymous senior military officials have said such a plan would jeopardize the military chain of command to say nothing of the proper administration and legal status and stability of the West Bank. The attorney general here, to go even further, Gali Baharav Miara, is already under fire from Benvir and other future government members for going against some of the above plans. One Likud member at least has already said she may have to be removed. And finally, in dozens of towns and local councils and hundreds of schools across Israel, an incipient revolt, there's no other real term for it, is brewing over the power's given to far-right extremist Avi Maoz over some of the education curricula taught in schools. So, taken as a whole, what does it all mean? That, I'd argue, at a certain point in the not-too-distant future, many of these civil servants and what's called in Israel gatekeepers, i.e. judges, police officials, army officers, and the like, may, I stress may, be forced into a very difficult, but not unprecedented, position, resign in protest at what the incoming government is doing, or stay in their posts in order to try to attenuate or block many of these looming plans. Again, not unprecedented. 
These quote-unquote gatekeepers, along with the Israeli public and international community, are all waiting to see what those plans will actually amount to. But the concern is real, and I'd argue extremely warranted. Let's get to Shani and Noah. Hi, everyone. My name is Shani Reichman. I know I'm not your usual host. I am the director of IPFAT, the Young Professionals Program here at Israel Policy Forum, and I will be filling in this week. I'm fortunate to be joined today by Noah Schusterman, an old friend and a good friend of myself and the organization. We're going to be talking about the recent escalations in the West Bank and the security situation in Israel at large. We're going to talk about the Israeli elections and their impact on all of that, and also how the sentiments are around the Israeli election, both in Israel and the United States. In addition, we might cover the future of the Palestinian Authority and the day after Mahmoud Abbas, which nobody wants to be talking about. One of the coolest parts about having Noah back on the show is that she actually hosted the first 10 podcasts of Israel Policy Pod. So we're in some ways hosting her back on her own original podcast, uh, back when she was the Research and Communications Fellow at Israel Policy Forum five years ago, which is when I started here as well. Well, it's good to be back, and I cannot take credit for this podcast because it's far exceeded my expectations, and I think uh, you folks are doing an amazing job with the podcast, and I follow it all the time. So thank you for treating my baby well. (laughs) (laughs) A few more details about Noah, even though her claim to fame is, of course, her time with Israel Policy Forum and the podcast. She's a researcher and the Israel-Palestinian Research Program Coordinator at the INSS in Tel Aviv. She holds a BA in philosophy, political science, and economics from the Hebrew University, and a master's in international relations with a concentration in the Middle East from New York University as a Fulbright scholar, which is, of course, what you were doing when we met. Yes. So earlier this week on Monday, I believe, Noah gave a briefing on the security situation in the West Bank for the IPFAT community in New York. And I have to say it was quite depressing. There were not very many notes of optimism from the briefing. And Noah has promised to try to be as optimistic as possible while, of course, remaining realistic and forthright. I'll try to tone it down, I promise. <laughs> she's she's not the most fun at dinner parties, she says. I'm actually really fun at dinner parties when it's not, when we don't discuss Israeli-Palestinian relations. <laughs> So when people ask, what do you do for work? You change the topic immediately. I try to, or I just like mumble. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to, to sum up the situation a little bit before we get into the details, we're seeing an increasing number of IDF incursions into Area A. We're, of course, seeing an increasing number um, compared to previous years of Israelis killed, of Palestinians killed. Um, we are also seeing the um, a per- particular... Um, tension in the northern West Bank in Nablus and Janine, where we see new terror groups rising up and the Palestinian Authority is is now seeing little to no control of the situation with fights breaking out between the IDF and these militant groups, even in the middle of the day. So what's your overall assessment of the security situation? And uh, basically just tell us how bad is it really? How alarmed should we be? Okay, so let's maybe start with the stats because that would kind of like put us in place. As of yesterday, there were 150 Palestinians killed in the West Bank, uh, which I think in uh, 2021, it was about 80. Um, So, and we haven't finished with uh, 22 yet. 
Um, and then 31 Israelis who were killed this year as well, which is far more than what we've seen uh, in 2021. Um, so we, we realize the situation is not good and um, it's continuous. Um, so I will remind our listeners that in uh, March uh, 2022, there were a few terrorist attacks that started t- taking place within Israel. So um, there's always been, you know, terrorist attacks, smaller scale uh, terrorist attacks happening in the settlements. But this was Israel proper. So we had um, an attack in uh, in Khadera and in Bnei Brak um, and in Tel Aviv right next to my house. So and and it's it felt very different to average day Israeli. Um, and people are talking about um, kind of um, having a post-trauma from Second Intifada and, and sensing that this was very sim- similar. Um, so the IDF launched um, an operation called it Breaking Waves Operation in order to cut the terrorist waves um, and uh, neutralize the situation. Um, I have to admit, it was not successful. Um, they thought it was going to be a very easy task of um, what the IDF usually does. They go into uh, centers of uh, um, Palestinian populations in the middle of the night, uh, the incursions, they um, they arrest uh, the people that are wanted, and then they pull back out. And what they've noticed ever since engaging in this operation was that um, the people that they're arresting are becoming more violent, more, um, what's the word, kind of like reckless and not really um, uh, willing to kind of uh, lie down and, and take it in. And, and basically there were more and more fighting happening in Palestinian urban centers. And it was slowly also slipping into like broad daylight, which is the IDF uh, in the past would not act in the middle of broad daylight because um, it causes more tension and more friction. And um, and you're trying also to not weaken the PA, which essentially that's also what it's, it's doing because there are the Palestinian security apparatuses. They're supposed to be acting within Area A. And when the IDF is very apparent in those areas, then obviously it reflects on the inefficiency of the, the Palestinian security apparatuses. So this overall dynamic has really created more and more Palestinian young folks who are um, trying to counter the IDF, um, who are trying to um, really like barricade themselves and the houses and the refugee camps and sh- and there are shootouts in the middle of the day. Um, and it's not subsiding. And not only is it not subsiding, it's actually escalating. And we've seen um, about four to six new organizations just like pop up in that area between uh, Janine and Nablus. Um, and it's all on TikTok and it's very easy for them to mobilize new people. And the there's no like classic terrorist organization or organizational uh, at large uh, affiliation. Um, it's more opportunistic in terms of whoever gives me um, weapons, um, well, that's the person I'm going to be uh, fighting for. Um, so we're really seeing very new uh, phenomena happening in the West Bank. And it is a reason for concern because it's not subsiding because whatever the IDF does, and again, like right now there is a, a big march in the Balata refugee camp by one of this new brigades. Um, and there are shootouts on um, uh, the Joseph Tomb area in Nablus. 
Um, so all of this is, it's kind of unclear to see how the dynamics is actually going to, um, to go calmer and not further escalation um, at this point. So what you think is driving a lot of this militancy is really a feeling of hopelessness in the Palestinian youth. And you're seeing a willingness to die, which really changes the nature of how they function, right? The, the type of terror attack you might engage in um, is more likely to cause more deaths if you're willing to die with the victims. Yeah. And they're actually, they're gaining a lot of popularity, these groups, because they're doing something a bit different than what we've seen so far is that they're mainly, mainly targeting IDF. Uh, soldiers, outposts, cars, vehicles. Um, so they're trying, again, most of them, this is not, um, um, it's not complete um, um, in terms of their MO, but um, they're usually trying to target mostly military uh, targets um, and not so much civilian. So the population at large has their backs because they feel that this is like they are in occupied territories. So it's reasonable to actually target military targets. Um, and that's uh, they're getting a lot of uh, good feedback from their surroundings. We see people who are associated with the Palestinian security apparatus acting either with them. Um, sometimes it's their sons. Uh, sometimes it's even like in a shootout. Um then afterwards, the IDF arrest people from the PSA who have been engaging in the violence. Um, so it's it's really hectic in terms of who are these people, and it's because it's really um, there is um, um, a very like grassroots feeling to this. Um, it's very difficult to really dismantle this organization. Um, and again, social media really helps in their favor um, to mobilize. So they could there could be a shootout in Janine and then they post it on TikTok. Um, and then you would see people from Nablus trying to, um, you know, reinforce, which obviously the IDF has, has become aware of this. So it's now acting against it. But but still, it makes it much more difficult, especially when you're in a very populated area. And sometimes it's just the neighbors or the people from the neighborhood. Um, next to it. So something that I think is of note that from what you just mentioned was the Palestinian Authority security apparatus getting involved, right? And something we've been warning about at Israel Policy Forum um, and probably at INSS for a very long time is the stability of the Palestinian Authority, but also the role of security coordination with the IDF. So a few questions on this. First of all, um, why is it that we're seeing the security forces who are meant to be kind of backing up the IDF in a lot of ways, right? They're meant to be stabilizing the area, coordinating with the IDF. How is it that we are now seeing people from that community engaging in violence against the IDF? How did that come about? Um, so it's really a um, kind of a long dynamic. Um, we can trace it back. First of all, covid um, and there were the closures in the Palestinian territories, which um, because of um, systematic um, obstacles that there are on uh, the PSA, that they can't really um, transfer, transfer teams um, from between areas. Um, so basically they had to call reinforcement, not from their uh, neighboring city, because then 
traveling through area C is more difficult, they would actually utilize um, Tanzim groups. Um, and Tanzim, which is an organization that we've kind of seen disappear these past 10 years, has really sprung up back again um, on the behest of, of COVID and assisting um, the Palestinian Authority um, enforce those closures. Um, so that was one thing. And then later on, we've had Muhammad Ashtaya, who was calling for a disconnect um, of severing ties with Israel. Um, this was 2020 to 2021. It was about six months um, or maybe t- uh, 2021, I think. Um, it was right after uh, the Trump deal was uh, published. So, yeah, that was early 21. Um, so they cut off ties for about six months. Um, and during that time, now the IDF is, is forthright and, and the intelligence community about, um, actually this was kind of crucial times for, um, the, um, security coordination to, uh, be really challenged. It was sustained on a very low level of like the, the professional work. Um, it wasn't even really sustained. It was more like if there was a team that was, um, wanting to move from a- one area to another, then they would kind of like leave a note just to make sure that the IDF is not going to shoot them. And it was like basically utilizing the pre-existing relationship um, and and not really asking for permission, but just like letting you know that this is happening. And they ma- they managed to not um, have, you know, um, any kind of... Uh, um, incidences where it was unclear of what's happening. Um, but in terms of how it affected the actual um, um, dynamic of um, professional relations, and and this was really crucial time for Hamas and for PIJ and for Tanzim groups to kind of um, you, um, basically take advantage of the fact that there was no intelligence sharing during that time. So it was much more difficult for the PSA to actually act, act against those groups. Um, and and adding to all of that, we have to kind of remember the economic uh, situation in the the PA where um, they everybody who works for the government has been deducted about a third of their salary. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, that's actually the case for the past, I think, three years. Um, so they've never actually returned to getting the full amount of their salaries. So all of these together is kind of depicting a picture of PSA officers, well, they're being challenged. Um, they're being challenged also from within their own community um, of how is it how is it possible that you're um, helping the IDF and you're not helping your own people? Um, and it's also being challenged in, um, in an issue that we're probably going to discuss um, uh, a bit later is the day after Abbas and, and, Abbas and the rivalry um, that's now taking place, which is very local. It has, there are different candidates who are kind of like starting to like round up um, militant groups around them in preparation for the day after Abbas. And then obviously PSA soldiers uh, and and not soldiers, but officers, they live in their own community. Um, so they partaking this. Um, so it's kind of like not reasonable to, to totally take them out of the equation. Um, and all of these issues together combined is basically feeding into the disintegration or the lack of capability of the PSA to actually 
um, you know, take charge. And just one example is there was, um, I think it was three months ago, there was an arrest of a Hamas operative in, I think it was Janine um, or Nablus. I'm not, I don't really remember, but one of those areas. But anyway, it was, he was arrested by the PSA. And there was so many, there were so many demonstrations uh, by the Palestinians that it was the PSA that arrested and not the IDF and basically talked um, telling them that there are betrayers and collaborators and whatnot, um, that he was released after two days because um, they couldn't really, um, um, you know, persist. Um, um, and he was put in, uh, in, um, in detention afterwards, but it was it really was a portrayal of how weak they are, that even when it comes to their own interests, and, and Hamas is definitely not in the best interest of the PA, and the PA really tries to um, counter Hamas as, po- as much as possible, still they weren't really unable to really do this very simple task of holding this guy um, accountable for his actions. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what we're seeing is a result of the Palestinian Authority being, first of all, a lot of their own officers are feeling hopeless and feeling weakened. Um, But even those who want to be contributing to this cause and who want to be coordinating with the IDF and who want to be stabilizing the situation are not strong enough to do so, right? I mean, in a way they are, and it's still happening. We still have the coordination happening, but first of all, to a much lesser extent, because the IDF is is also from its end not really trusting the PSA capabilities. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's a chicken and an egg. It's, it's the IDF started the incursions in March 22. Um, and actually Janine, if I'm not mistaken, there were not so many, there was like one or two of the terrorists were actually from Janine, but it was feeding on to the area of Janine, which has always been traditionally, uh, very much, uh, infused with many, uh, terrorist cells. Um, so obviously they had Intel and that's why they entered Janine, but, this entire dynamic, um, you can you can really ask whether or not it's been um, a result the the weakening of the PSA and the PA as a, as basically a consequence. Whether or not this is a result of the IDF incursions, or maybe it led to the IDF incursions. At the end of the day, we've very early on at INSS, we've basically said that this breaking waves operation is actually making waves. Um, and I, I think that it's been really proven on the ground uh, these past few months. And since I promised a little bit of optimism, why don't we talk about where the Palestinian Authority is still strong? So where are the cities in Area A where they actually are functioning properly and um, and managing to stabilize the situation, if any? Look, we have to remember that security is important, but it's also not everything. So the PA is still... Um, providing for education and providing for health and for welfare. Um, and it has its, its moments and it's really trying its best. And it, and when it comes to security, that's where it's mostly being, um, um, you know, kind of countered that it's having more difficulties. Um, but it's not everything. And it is like it's people like to talk about how the P is no longer relevant. I think that's. That's untrue because they don't understand how um, how important the PA is to every person's life. And of course, like any other country or political entity or whatever you want to call it, then obviously it has its difficulties. 
Um, and obviously, the lack of democracy is is really hurting the legitimacy of uh, the leadership. Um, but in terms of the everyday lives, when it doesn't have to do with security and, and IDF incursions, then it's it's doing its job. Um, and it's really trying actually now to take advantage of um, the new Israeli government and kind of uh, try to um, expand its um, activities on, uh, against Israel on the international arena. And it's probably going to be a bit more successful than it was in the past, but that's re- not really thanks to the PA. That's more thanks to the Israeli government. Um, but they're realizing that this is a good momentum for them. So they're taking advantage. Um, and we are probably going to see much more activity on the international arena and uh, the international criminal court and the international um, court of justice. And a lot of those activities are about to take place. And um, well, it is true that a lot of Palestinians are kind of putting into question the necessity of the PA. I think it's not very genuine because, again, the um, educational institutes are funded by the PA and are a crucial element of Palestinian society. Um, so it's not black or white. But if we're ta- if we're thinking back onto the security front of the Palestinian Authority, are they still worth investing in? Are they still worth lifting up? Are they still worth um, collaborate? I shouldn't use the word collaborating, but coordinating with cooperating, um, cooperating <laughs> with when it comes to the United States and the Israeli militaries. Is that something still worth investing in, or is it even a risk to be investing more in them, given that some of them are turning their guns around? In I the think other it's direction? it's worth investing in them, but it's also um, I think it's a wake up call in terms of the reforms that are needed. Um, and this is something that actually uh, there's the USSC. Um, so, um, they've been actually calling for reforms in the PSA for a very long time. And I think this was actually kind of a good demonstration of, of the reforms that are needed. So first of all, uh, the PSA is built as a, like a, an upside down pyramid. Uh, there are more senior level officers than there are officers on the ground. And that's, um, and that's a result of the corruption mostly, right? That's a result of the corruption and, and Yeah. There is a lot of corruption. Like nobody's actually refuting the fact that there's corruption in the PA. Um, It's part of the corruption and it's, um, yeah, (laughs) nothing more to say about that issue. But anyway, there's those kind of reforms. But also um, there are there's a lot of overlap um, in the missions of the different. There's like the... um, how do you call it in English? Uh, so like the counter security and there's the national security. And anyway, those different apparatuses, they have kind of overlapping missions. So it's not very efficient at many times. Um, maybe a national security council could actually be something very useful for the Palestinians. And, and this is an idea that I heard from a very high level Palestinian that's very well connected to the PSA who said like, this is something, and he was talking about these reforms as well, which I've heard in the past, the USSC um, um, folks talking about, but I heard this now from Palestinians. So there is like a realization that the reforms need to happen. And, um, and also maybe like the, the wages issue should be resolved um, and basically giving more incentive for those PSA officers to stay in line and not be corrupted. But I think it also, 
we have to realize that uh, they do also live within their communities. And, and so it's, and as things get tougher, um, basically it is, I don't want to say an enemy. I think to many, this is like Israeli Palestinians are enemies. I think in many ways it is, but it's also the entire security coordination concept. It's like, okay, that's something that you don't really do with an enemy. So obviously it's a more complicated situation. Um, but I think when you kind of like dig deep, then you understand that you have to really strengthen the PA as a concept and also how it can provide for personal safety and security to its people. Um, and that's something that I think Israel does not really pay enough attention to and realizing how their lack of ability to do so is really affecting its overall image as the, the Palestinian authority and, and the state to be, which is a different issue, <laughs> but also a very important one. Leaning back into the Israeli interests part of this, it's, of course, in Israel's best interest for their security, not necessarily their political um, issues, but from a security standpoint, it's in Israel's best interest to stabilize the PA. What have they been doing to lift up, to stabilize, or maybe to weaken the PA over the past, let's say, 10 years? Um, and what can they be doing to make the situation better? And I'll um, reiterate that what I meant was that from a political standpoint, there are, of course, Israeli leaders that stand to gain from destabilizing the PA. But from a security standpoint, of course, they do not in any way. Yeah. Um, so I think the past 10 years were actually um, characterized but by, by what the Palestinians call as economic peace. Uh, so usually economic steps that do not have any kind of uh, political uh, implications. Um, and that was um, those were the sort of actions that uh, Israel was uh, taking and, of course, sustaining the um, security coordination as much as possible. Um, and really trying to kind of avoid any action that might seem as legitimizing a Palestinian statehood. Um, and that was the, um, those were the policies for the past 10 years. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what policies are going to be enacted now. It's, I, I can say it's, I think it's unclear because you have diverging, diverging interests, um, between Alikud, um, which is trying to maybe sustain kind of this, uh, um, um, economic peace concept. Versus um, Smotrich, Ben Gvir, and his friends, who they have no interest in anything that might um, stabilize the Palestinians. Um, I think um, I'm, I'm going to say something controversial, and this is not INSS um, opinion. This is my own. I think they actually thrive from the instability in the West Bank because it's further proof of why Palestinian state um, will essentially be a terrorist state um, and cannot be trusted um, and would be a threat to Israeli security. Um, it doesn't take into consideration what Israel does, um, and now it feeds into the instability, but it's kind of like it's very easy to, it's like very low-hanging fruit for them um, to take this instability and, and see it as proof um, to all these things. Um, so it's going to be, interesting to see how this goes 
um, and how strong Netanyahu is in the face of all the challenges that they're going to put on him. And we've already seen kind of a, I don't know if the coalition agreements are sort of a harbinger to that, um, that um, Netanyahu agreed to some very controversial things that even the top of the military establishment, um, which is very apolitical, they really do not um, try to interfere in any kind of politics whatsoever. They've uh, referred not to the politics of it, but to the um, practicality of separating the border control units um, from uh, the Ministry of um, Home Defense um, and putting them under Ben Gvir for this national security office or separating COGAD and the civil administration from the Minister of Defense and putting him and putting them under a minister within the Ministry of Foreign, uh, of, sorry, the minister within the Ministry of Defense who is responsible for the settlements and, um, and also is going to have a, a new unit of, um, legal advisors. So what, ha- but this is actually a big issue that not a lot of people are talking about. So traditionally, whoever deals with the questions of uh, like the, the legal questions of the West Bank is the IDF. There's like the, the legal unit within the IDF. And many times they're actually kind of um, holding back a few of the, um, of the, of the political steps because they're, they're, they really have this like double hat of the security and the legal. Um, and now what's going to happen is that uh, Smotrich is going to open a new um, West Bank or Judean Samaria legal council under his new uh, minister. Um, and they're obviously going to be appointed based on their views and, and what they think, um, how you can, um, you know, legalize some of the actions that Smotrich is looking for. Um, and they're going to be much more political versus, uh, unlike the, um, the legal advisor at the IDF. Um, so basically what we see is Smotrich trying to take down all these obstacles that are traditionally holding back the, the settlement expansion. Um, and trying to kind of dismantle them and, and, you know, take control over them and rebuild them and reshape them in his form. Um, and Netanyahu, uh, he agreed to this. Um, so it's true that he still kind of leaves, you know, uh, an upper hand and um, he still has some, like, um, you know, overarching authority and he can basically also make decisions um, to override this minister. Um, but then he would be in a coalition crisis. So it's not really clear on what are the terms that he will be able to kind of use his um, his authority. Um, and we're going to enter into very difficult times in that sense, uh, because Netanyahu is really going to be very challenged on this front. And this is a very sensitive time from the get-go. So like everything we've talked about so far, um, the PA is very, very weak. It needs strengthening. It doesn't need to be further challenged. And the fact that it's going to be probably further challenged, um, it's it's going to make it much more difficult for the IDF to uh, and the Shin Bet and all the security establishment um, to, to realize stability and calm. We'll be right back after this brief message. Israel Policy Forum works to strengthen support for advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to preserve Israel's future as Jewish, democratic, and secure. 
We provide constructive policy analysis and pragmatic policy recommendations, produce credible research reports, deliver thoughtful and nuanced commentary, build engaging and innovative educational content, and create informational video content covering critical issues. We are trusted as a reliable resource in Washington and the Jewish community. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of the two-state solution, read the Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau's weekly article on current events, engage with our young professional network, IPF Atid, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. If you rely on Israel Policy Forum for credible, informational, and thoughtful analysis, please make a gift today to ensure that Israel Policy Forum's work continues to have an impact. Donate now at israelpolicyforum.org support. So despite the reputation of Netanyahu to be really invested in stabilizing the situation, which he's always been quite conservative when it comes to that, and trying to avoid a massive escalation, he might not have control over that because, well, he, he could have control, but he has to he has to divvy out all of his political favors to people who are far less invested in a stable situation. Mm-hmm. And because of that, he could find himself um, in a situation that he doesn't like and the security establishment does not like even more. Yep. And I think an interesting um, trend that we've seen, which is, I think, very disturbing, is the politicization? Politicization. Politicization. Okay, that makes no sense, that word. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Of the um, security establishment. So this has been ongoing for the past month. There was this event of the soldier um, in Hebron who was uh, beating up a protester, a lefty uh, protester, and saying Ben Gvir is, uh, is about to like um, create order, here. create order, or something like that. And then it wasn't the incident insel- itself, because within the military, this was like very is- easily dealt with, and it was clear that as a soldier you're not it's not even about the the verbal uh, assault it's about him like beating up a protester which is obviously not allowed even if it's if you're being antagonized you're not supposed to be doing that they're also we have to remind ourselves that idf are not police they have different authority when it comes to israeli citizens um but anyway um the way that this issue was politicized the fact that he went to prison for like military prison for 10 days and then all the politicians are talking about how political the idf is well i mean this is like in the textbook that you're not supposed to be doing this so um and this you know this reached the chief of staff and politicization of the the chief of staff and now also the chief of staff talking about how dangerous the separation of power that's happening and he actually talked that's what i was kind of referring to before about that this is it's supposedly political but it's not really because he's talking about his bread and butter which is the security of israel and he's kind of put in this spot where he doesn't really have an option but to you know talk as loud and clear as possible and say like danger this is not you're taking away some of my authority as a chief of staff. Um, and and this is dangerous because these units are, are needed or you're going to have to like call in for more reserves. And, and this is costly and the IDF doesn't have this budget. And, and there are so many issues that kind of that go into it. Um, at, but at the end of the day, this is painted politically. 
And it's going to be, I think, very, very challenging for the next uh, chief of staff um, to kind of, you know, um, balance his way in this political environment, um, especially because he was appointed by the previous government. And this was in itself kind of like a controversial act because um, the new government claims that they were um, out of their authority and there was the um, legal advice that said that they are allowed to do this. But anyway, it's become like even more politicized um, than previous uh, times. Just to talk a little bit more on the IDF, they are, of course, heads of the IDF, obviously are very invested in not having it be a free-for-all, but rather having soldiers who actually fall in line, who follow their code of conduct and rules of engagement, right? So how is having some Ben-Gvir, the Ben-Gvirs and Smotriches of this government, um, in charge and responsible for elements of the IDF, um, so COGOT, civil administration, et cetera, how is that going to impact the IDF itself, right? Are we going to see more and more, um, are we going to see that every time a soldier is thrown in prison for breaking the IDF's own codes that he gets pulled out right away because there's a massive rally or because we have members of Knesset saying, get him out of jail. He doesn't deserve to be there, even though he broke the law of Israel. So, so far, the IDF was able to kind of hold back. And this is this is not the first time that we see an event like this. So Eleo Rosalia, I think that was like three years ago um, when he shot the uh, the terrorist that he was already neutralized. He was handcuffed and then he shot him like I think it was 11 minutes after the, his apprehension. Um, he shot him in the back and then he was uh, imprisoned for it. Um, he was charged and then I think he spent a year in prison, which is not a lot, but this was like very political and became like an entire discussion of this is uh, our boy, our soldier, like we need to take responsibility for his actions. He cannot go to prison. He was acting against a terrorist. He felt threatened for his life. And these were kind of the sentiments that we heard. But, you know, the military judiciary did its course and and he was prosecuted and he was uh, imprisoned. Um but the politicization, I'm sorry, I'm never going to get this word right, um, of the situation, um, I think that's very disturbing. And I'm not sure, like, it's very early to tell how this is going to impact on the ground, but it's going to create very dangerous situations where it might be very unclear or soldiers that feel like they have the backing of politicians, so maybe they can... Um, you know, not abide by their commanders or that they get uh, double um, instructions or the clashing instructions. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this is actually uh, manifested, but it's going to be very challenging for the commanders in the IDF mm-hmm. who are handling the West Bank. Before we go back into the Palestinian Authority and the future of it, you're back in the States after three years away? Yes, right? three and a half. <laughs> three and a half. Um, after you, and before that, you were living here for several years. Yes, I was here for three years. So, and you have a lot of experience meeting with the Jewish community and meeting with the foreign policy community, right? So on this mm-hmm. trip, you met with the IPF Atid community. You met with Council on Foreign Relations. I'm sure with many others as well. Um, what is, how is the atmosphere different? Um, because now we're in a situation in Israel where the new government is going to be at odds with almost every American Jew, right? And with a lot of the foreign policy community. So what are your conversations looking like when it comes to that? And and what are your conversations like in Israel? Is it 
Um, is it like walking around D.C. after the first time Trump was elected? I mean, are people crying? What's the atmosphere like, particularly with young people? It's a very good question because it's difficult. To, uh, I'll start with the, the question about here in the U.S. I feel like um, everybody is really concerned. Everyone I talk to, like you asked me before about dinner parties and like how I present myself. But here when I, you know, I present myself and I, I tell people what I do, then the immediate question is like, okay, how bad is it? Uh, what's going to happen? Um, and this is not only because of media and, and you know, um, um, alarming news articles, but it's because people follow events and then you see that things are happening. It's like very difficult to stay um you know, untouched by this and indifferent. Um, so everybody's very concerned and they're very concerned about how the way that this new government is going to be able to handle it and how responsible it is going to be and how is Netanyahu going to be able to kind of uh, rein in or not, how, cha- how much is he going to be challenged. And I think these are kind of everybody's asking the same questions because we're all very concerned that there is going to be further escalation on the ground because it doesn't seem like things are winding down. It seems like there's even more, um, you know, power going into this and more energy. And and this is um, for young Palestinians, this is a, a momentum that they're now taking advantage of. Um, for Israelis, I'm, I'm sad to say that I think most Israelis are not quite... I don't know, engaged on this topic. Um, some are disturbed. I think people are disturbed more by other aspects of this new government. So anything that has to do with like democracy and women rights and um, LGBTQ rights, um, those are issues that in Israel are much more discussed. And obviously the economy and, you know, subsidies to ultra-Orthodox and, um these are kind of like the burning issues. Um, and, and when you sit in Tel Aviv, like I live in Tel Aviv, you sit in Tel Aviv in a cafe, you don't really like know what's, what's happened last night in Janine. Um, most Israelis do not really care or they don't feel that it affects them. Um, and I think for me personally, this is even more alarming because this is exactly like how we are, not even slowly, but we are quickly sliding into a Wednesday reality. And this is happening because people do not really care. <laughs> um, they kind of become uh, apathic to everything that has to do with Palestinians, which is reasonable because, you know, you live in Israel proper. You don't live when you don't live in Judea and Samaria, then you kind of don't really feel the conflict. You don't see the conflict and you're not as fearful. I think people living in other settlements and, and this was really feeding into the elections. They're much more fearful because in the past year we've seen an escalation and like stone throwing and paint throwing and, and Molotov cocktails. And um, so that that's been happening on the roads more and more in and near the settlements. Um, but in Tel Aviv and Kfal Saba and Haifa, things are kind of just the same they were before the elections. Um, and at the same time, then it is the people on the right and the Smotriches and the Benkvirs who are working furiously to expand uh, settlements and, you know, 
legalize the the young settlements, which are essentially outposts, illegal outposts, and um, doing whatever they can to make it impossible to ever separate from the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And as somebody who cares for both Jewish and democratic Israel, this concerns me for them. The democratic character is not as important. So they care more about the land and the Jewishness of the land than they care about its democracy. They don't care about having class B citizens who are Palestinians. Um, I do. And I think most Israelis do because it's like, um, I always give this example of like the difference between like the electoral, um, uh, results and then the, the popular votes. Um, in Israel, this was the case as well. So like when people say, well, the people have chosen and it's actually untrue. It's the problem was that there were two parties that did not enter, like they did not pass the threshold. So actually 48% of Israelis picked this government while 49% did not pick this government. Um, but because of how the system works, then, um, we didn't see another deadlock. We saw, um, um, better conditions for the right and the ultra orthodox, um, to build their coalition. And I think this should be a great wake up call to the Israeli left and center. And I really hope that they're kind of trying to realize their mistakes and, and fix them. Um, and, you know, also be a fearless opposition because that's what they're going to have to do now um, and try to as much as possible, you know, tone down these very negative um, issues that are about to take place very soon. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also safe to assume that there are folks who did vote for this coalition who didn't necessarily expect it to shape out like this. Right. Who maybe believe Netanyahu would rein everybody in. Um, right. They had a lot of faith in his ability to kind of stick yeah. to his guns. And I think we're seeing that that's not ultimately the case. But I, I do think that it is also possible that folks who did vote for him didn't necessarily think we would be seeing Smotrich and Ben Gvir in these types of positions. Now, perhaps they should have anticipated that, but I do think many didn't. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I mean, look, I have a lot of um, um, friends who voted Likud and family members. Um, there is a. Uh, a lot of trust in Netanyahu and his ability to kind of tone things down and, and take the risk and be responsible. And, uh, so we'll have to wait and see. It's really like too, too close to call, but um, I, I suspect there are many reasons to be apprehensive about. I think he's going to be more challenged than what he expected. And the coalition agreement with uh, ben Gvir and with Smotrich and, and actually Noam. I don't know if you guys mm-hmm. follow this issue, but like the education file that was separated that took out um, uh, like external education programs and which is a very big budget and they gave it to um, a misogynist <laughs> um, who like he really is. Like, Avi- I think he's like a self-proclaimed misogynist. <laughs> yes, um, Avi Maoz. Yes, Avi Maoz from Noam, which is like you know, even people from the right, they looked at him as like sort of like this really radical person who's like, nobody ever thought that there was an option that he would be a member of Knesset. And to Netanyahu's, um, you know, this was his doing. He was the one who was pushing Noam and Ben Gvir and to, to join Smotrich because he didn't want any of the uh, votes on the right to go to waste. And 
I mean, for, for him, it worked. Um, and it's a pity that the, the left wasn't like, you know, sad, p- political savvy enough to, um, to do the same. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Some of what we're seeing in the IPF Atid community here in the States, which is quite unfortunate in the aftermath of the elections, um, is actually very extreme. Um, really, a lot, of our, a lot of the folks in our community work in the Jewish community. So they are professionals on campuses. They do Israel education. They work with students. They work with other young professionals. Um, and and they, are, they are nervous. They're nervous about what the future of the pro-Israel community looks like. They're nervous about how this is going to impact their own activism and their own ability to fight for our values. And also remember that people here are um, the people here up against very extreme voices who say Israel's not a democracy anymore, who say Israel is a totally racist country, very extreme views on Israel um, from extremes in the United States. And this is just making it so much harder to fight back against that. Yeah. Is that something that Israelis are aware of? Are they aware that the folks who are doing the pro-Israel activism in the United States are now coming up against a caricature of what the the far left has been saying about Israel in being in the government now, right? Yeah. Look, again, um, I have to admit that in Israel, it's not really a concern or like the the Jew, the American Jewish community is not really something that's, you know, on everybody's uh, agenda in Israel. And, and we can talk a lot about like... Um, the division or um, kind of like the the trends that have been taking place between Israel and international Jewry. Um, but putting that aside, I mean, in the few days that I've been here, I have to admit that this is one of the major issues that everybody's, I've, I heard everybody talking about and everybody's super concerned about anti-Semitism. Everybody's super concerned about uh, Jewish education and Israel education and what's it going to look like. And I think maybe like you were asking me for some optimism. Um, I think this is actually where we kind of need to put things into perspective. Israel is a democracy. These elections were democratic. And as of now, it's still a democracy. Um, there will in four years or earlier, we'll see, but there will be other elections. And again, we will choose democratically. And, and hopefully this time, um, the other parties will know better um, on how to deal uh, with the, the political um, um, like actions that they need to take and, and maybe a bit less ego. Although like I think we saw a lot of that in this previous government. Uh, which was really able to cooperate. Um, so there are ups and downs in democracies. And like you guys also witnessed it. Um, and a lot of people here really dislike Trump. And, and okay, well, his uh, presidency is over and now we have Biden. So like, I think in terms of the kind of like the historical perspective, and, you know, also Trump was responsible for the Abram Accords. So even despite everything and how like, bad he was to many of the American Jews that I speak to, like they really dislike him, but like, let's give him the credit for like doing this really one very important and crucial thing, um, which maybe couldn't have taken place without him. So like, we really don't know. There are many surprises 
when it comes to these types of issues. And I think that kind of remembering that Israel, it's not as government um, and the government should be judged by its actions and not by the people who are in position. Um, so I think that should give us a bit more clarity and, 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 and for, for anybody who's really concerned about this and wants to make some sort of positive impact, then I would say, then, then think of how you can strengthen the moderates. Like all this talk, I, I hear a lot of talk about like maybe pressure in Israel more. And I think that's going to be counter-effective because it's actually going to strengthen exactly those people in the far right that are saying we have to be strong. We have to be independent because nobody's ever going to come to our assistance and everybody hates us. Um, and kind of like, you know, um, taking advantage of the situation for themselves uh, and for and to promote their agenda. Um so let's not let them do that and actually show that Israel still has support um, even during these difficult times and help Israel change when it's willing to make this change. And I think that's like my, the most positive I've been in a week. <laughs> I can, I, having spent a lot of this week with Noah, I can certainly attest to that. And I appreciate you using it here. Um, we, that is very aligned with the strategy we've been using at Israel Policy Forum and IPF Atid. Um, we've been focusing, I've been focusing very heavily on amplifying the voices of the Israelis fighting for their own democracy right now. And yes, Israel is still a democracy. But if you listen to our last podcast, you know there is democratic erosion slowly occurring. And so we do have to be very cautious around that and lift up the voices in Israel that, like yourself who are, who are cautioning against ex escalation, cautioning against a one-state reality that we could be sliding into or perhaps are. Very much uh, midway. <laughs> <laughs> um, and cautioning against the erosion of democracy and religious pluralism issues, all of that. So um, I, I definitely think that's the the approach that we'll need to be taking in terms of partnering more with people like yourself um, and other Israeli partners on the ground. So on the, on the topic of the Palestinian Authority and the future of the Palestinian Authority, there, for the past 10 years, 15 years even, we've been talking about the day after Abu Mazen, after Mahmoud Abbas dies. Now, I think his father lived till about 100. So we could be far away 103, from 103, if I'm not mistaken. Wow, that's really something special. Um, in any case, eventually there will be a successor to Abbas. Who are the candidates for that? What's, and who are in the best interests of our priorities as people who want to see a stable West Bank and Israel? Okay, so this is, um, as you said, this is an issue that's kind of been discussed at length since, I think about like since 2014 or something. Um, but yeah, eventually Abbas will die or leave his seat, but I doubt that's going to happen willingly. Um, he's 87. Um, so, you know, at one point it will happen. And then there's very much the question of what are the circumstances in which this happened? It's, so we've actually, um, we published a memo, uh, at INSS, um, depicting the different scenarios, um, that could take place after he leaves the stage. Um, and, it varies. I can uh, maybe refer to them quickly to the m main five scenarios that we've uh, um, traced out. So I would say maybe the more 
the most optimistic would be elections. So basically what the Constitution, the Palestinian Constitution uh, stipulates is that 60 days um, after the president dies, um, immediately there's um, um, a temporary leadership that's uh, uh, been led by the chairman of the House of Parliament. Um, they, uh, within 60 days, will need to have elections for the presidency. Now, sounds good and all, but there are a few caveats to that, which mainly the chairman of the parliament is a Hamas um, uh, member. So it's very unlikely that, that this scenario would actually um, take place and that the Fatah leadership uh, we do, will, will agree to this. Um, if for some reason it does, then we do have the parameters that were um um, agreed upon in 2021 when there was discussion, when basically there was a decree for elections uh, in the Palestinian Authority. So that could be the formula uh, for how these elections would take place. Um, this was agreed uh, upon between Fatah and Hamas. Um, so if this happens, that will be the formula. But it, again, it's very unlikely that this will happen. Um, then the second scenario is that we have a predetermined successor, which at the moment seems like the most likely, but there are a few caveats to that as well. So Hussein al-Sheikh um, has been very highly promoted by Abbas to succeed him. Um, he's been uh, putting more and more of the spotlight on him um, and uh, giving him positions within Fatah and within the PLO. Um and this is very, very controversial because the Palestinians do not see themselves living in an autocratic uh, um, uh, state or entity. Um, they aspire to be part of a, a democracy. Um, and also there's a lot of infighting between Fatah of not accepting this and, be, and inside the PLO of not accepting this and inside the PA. So it's not going to be so easy. What's... Um, what Abbas and, and Hussein al-Sheikh are trying to do at the moment is basically, you know, um, um, merge as much as possible of um, and have Hussein al-Sheikh take as much as possible um, of the responsibilities for this to be, um, you know, the easiest option and for nobody able to kind of do a coup d'etat against him um, if they disagree with the appointment. Um, so in that sense, it's going to be very much of a question of, of what are the circumstances in which Abbas leaves. But I have to say that Hussein al-Sheikh is very unpopular within Palestinian society. He has about like 3% uh, of like approval rates. Um, he's one of the, like the least liked candidates also because he's seen as a successor of Abbas and he's still in the same path and the same agenda um, and uh, very much believes in cooperation with Israel, but also very oppositional to Israel in terms of his rhetoric, uh, which, you know, many times it seems like it, you don't know who said it, whether it's Hussein al-Sheikh or Mahmoud Abbas. Um, and actually there have been accusations of sexual assault uh, by Hussein al-Sheikh, where, where, which were um, ultimately, you know, quieted down and, and disappeared. So um, he's very much considered corrupt and disliked. So um, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not he's able to actually, um, you know, take the reins. Um, 
because uh, even though Abbas is very disliked, he still kind of has the privilege of being elected to 2005, and he still feeds off of that. Uh, and Hussein Ashraf would not have the same um, uh, fortune. Um, a third option is a division of power. So basically, we know that Mahmoud Abbas he has three hats. He has he's the chairman of the PLO, he has the chairman of Fatah, and he's also the president of the PA. Um, right now, he has them all. He doesn't have then the, his successor does not need to have all three hats. There could be more of a division of power, and this way, maybe uh, the people who see themselves as candidate they could be placated um, and maybe willing to not go into succession struggles, which is the fourth option um, of having really intensified succession struggles. What could be, they could be very local. Uh, so we talked a bit about uh, before about uh, the different groups within uh, the Palestinian society, the, the people who are, you know, taking up arms. Um, they're very much affiliated um, with uh, some of the candidates um, so it's like a chamura, it's a tribal thing, um, and they're standing up for their own interests. Um, so we might see a lot of infighting between these different groups. Um, it could be very escalatory and actually lead into chaos, which is our fifth scenario, which has many kind of like sub-scenarios. But overall, it's... Um, not it's a non-functional PA that is can be uh, separated into like cantons um, and just local different uh, localities. Um, it could be uh, there can be a, an attempt by Hamas to take over. Um, so any there's like a plethora of uh, of chaos scenarios that can take place, um, and it's very difficult to say at this point which one is going to be uh, the li- the likeliest uh, because, again, it's very circumstantial. And Israel has an option to, to influence. Um, and this goes back to our previous discussion about uh, strengthening the PA. Um, what's needed at the moment is Israeli policy that strengthened the PA in order to allow it to have a peaceful transfer of power so that when things um, happen, it doesn't escalate. It doesn't, uh, the, the, the Palestinian Authority doesn't crumble. Um, and there's a, a very, uh, you know, well-sustained uh, and powerful mechanism that is able to, to kind of allow this transfer, a peaceful transfer of power. Um and this is something that Israel can engage in. The international community can help with this. The, um, I think, uh, U.S. foreign policy really much can, can help with this. And I think they're actually trying to do that. Um, but it takes all of the, uh, all of these together, plus, uh, Mahmoud Abbas to be willing to admit the fact that he's going to die at some point, which at the moment is kind of seeming <laughs> like not, we're not there yet. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but anyway, our, our memo is, uh, supposed to be published in English and I think it may be like two weeks to a month, hopefully. So, um, I'll send it over to Shani, uh, so she can get some insights. <laughs> mm-hmm. I noticed you conveniently left out which you think is the most likely scenario. So I worry it is not the best of the scenarios, but that's okay. No, I think there isn't, it's not... 
I think really it's maybe uh, irresponsible to, to say that there is like a, a more reasonable scenario at the moment because I think all of them have very similar probabilities. Um, and like I'm not in the business of uh, fortune telling. Um, but I think it's, it's our responsibility to kind of realize what are the different options and prepare for all of them. Um, prepare for the option of Palestinians calling for elections. And then Israel will again have to face the question of, uh, elections in Jerusalem and whether or not it could hold back and, and deny this when, Abbas has left the stage and maybe this is the only way to stabilize the PA. Um, and it can all, it also needs to prepare itself for further escalation and, and chaos in the PA. Um, so in between there's, there are many things that Israel needs to, to do in order to prepare for, for the day after. And, and also in many ways, the day after is already here. So we already see it uh, impacting the dynamics and, and what we see happening in, in Northern Samaria. Um, but yeah, this is this is what's needed and not kind of, you know, one of the, um, I think it was one of the hearings, that the congressional hearings that they had after the, the, um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I forgot who they were interview who one of the major generals um, who was speaking at this uh, congressional hearing. And basically he was talking about how they prepared own, like how they were surprised by the Taliban takeover and because they were uh, prepared for the best case scenario. Um, so this is exactly what we shouldn't do. We should prepare, even if the worst case scenario is the least likeliest and really has a very small probability, we still have to, you know, prepare ourselves for that because it could happen. Yeah. There's that optimism. <laughs> so we're, we're going to wrap up. Really grateful to be joined with, by you today, Noah. It's, I have seen you recently, but the United States has not seen you recently, so we're happy to have you here. Okay, many thanks to Shani Reichman and Noah Schusterman for the previous conversation. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. I'll be back next week for an end-of-year recap episode, and what a year it has been. Uh, just remember, before that, to subscribe. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.